She's told him it's over repeatedly, but he just can't accept it. He's sure she'll change her mind, take him back. She just has to realize that she has no choice, because as far as he's concerned, if he can't have her, then no one will. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 137, The Murder of Nandi Mbazani. This episode is sponsored by Ring. Tis the season to be jolly, and not to be anxious about leaving your home. This festive season, make sure you stock up on Ring devices, which range from video doorbells to alarms and cameras. These easy-to-install smart home security products will give you peace of mind while you're away, as you can see, hear, and talk to visitors from anywhere through your phone, tablet, or PC. Ring's products are available at Take-A-Lot, Builders Warehouse, Incredible Connection, Vodacom, and Leroy Merlin. For more information on these devices, either for yourself or to gift a loved one, visit ring.com. Because with Ring, you're always home. A huge thank you to Ring for sponsoring this episode of True Crime South Africa. Since 2019, True Crime South Africa has been telling the stories of the victims of violent crime in South Africa. The podcast is independent. That means... No big or even little corporates fund it. And that's just the way I like it. And it's the only independent podcast in South Africa that consistently charts in the top 10. Keeping a podcast like this going is time-consuming. And for the most part, it remains a one-woman process. It's me. I'm the one woman. You? Yes, you are the reason this podcast continues to flourish and help bring in tips on missing person and cold cases. If you'd like to help keep the show running, please consider supporting our sponsors, signing up to Patreon or PayPal, follow the show on the socials, as the kids say, and share it with your fellow partners in crime. You can find our social links and learn more about our sponsors at True Crime South Africa forward slash donate. Shout out to this week's Patreon and PayPal superstars. A huge thank you goes out to Rushanda and Theo Hardhoff for your support on Patreon, as well as Martha Morrison and Ilka Zenskiralyi for your support on PayPal. Thank you so much, everyone. Patreon supporters get one additional exclusive episode a month, a shout out on the pod, and other exclusive contents, including Q&As with me, as and when it's available. It's a minimum of $1 a month. I think you should do it. Please. And thank you. Kia I first started delving into this case in August, when I covered a series of no-body convictions on the Patreon feed. And I'll get into the concept of no-body convictions a bit more later in the episode, but I have covered one such case on TCSA before, and that was the murder of Francis Rasuke, 
which is episode 22 of the podcast, which blows my mind, considering that that is 110 episodes ago. If you haven't listened to that one, I highly recommend you do after this. There are many tragic parallels between these two cases, and much of the eventual conviction process was built around how Francis's murder was prosecuted. In researching this case, I used the judgments from this case and a few media articles. So, let's get into episode 137, The Murder of Nandi Mbizani. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Nandi Mbazani was born and raised in KwaZulu-Natal with her mom and siblings. Her father sadly passed away when Nandi was just a baby, but the young woman was clearly raised with the fond memories family had of the man, because she would go on to do several things in her future to honour him. Her family describes her as tenacious and ambitious, and she certainly built a pretty incredible and independent life for herself. Nandi graduated from the University of KZN with a BCom degree in Finance and Economics. She'd undertaken this specific degree in honour of her dad who just graduated himself with the same qualification when he passed away. She then went on to attain an honours degree in economics as well, and was soon in high demand in the job market. In 2009, Nandi moved to Johannesburg to take advantage of a position she'd been offered there at a high-profile business consultancy company. She purchased a townhouse and was doing really well for herself. Nandi's co-workers described her as an incredibly competent and reliable colleague. She had a small group of very close friends, and although she didn't have a steady partner at the time she moved to Johannesburg, she was dating and open to a relationship if she met the right man. Nandi had also decided to further her studies around this time. Her mom had been studying law when she had fallen pregnant with her first child, and had then decided to rather dedicate her time to her family, but she'd always had a niggling regret about her incomplete qualification. So Nandi decided that she would complete an LLB degree by correspondence in honour of her mother, who she felt had given up so much to ensure that she had as many opportunities as possible in life. Despite how full Nandi's life and schedule were, in 2010, she met a young man who she began dating. Zweli Banzi Zunga was 28 years old when he met Nandi, who was 25 at the time. He was employed full-time at a logistics company, and although he'd never been married, he did have two sons from a previous relationship, who lived with their grandmothers in KZN. Although Nandi was very close with her family, she was also a very private person, and most of her family members would say she didn't really discuss her romantic relationships in detail with anyone, 
but it soon became clear that Nandi was not very happy in her relationship with Swelebanzi. The man was extremely controlling and emotionally abusive, and wanted to know what Nandi was doing every minute of the day when she wasn't with him. For any young woman, and especially one who was very clearly independent, earning her own money, with a blossoming career and her own home, the relationship was stifling and suffocating, and Nandi soon wanted out. By December 2011, when Nandi went to visit her family in KZN for the festive season, she'd broken up with Zuelabanzi. Her mom would later testify that Nandi had told her in January 2012, during a conversation they were having, that she was no longer dating Zuelabanzi. Her sister and friends also confirmed that she told them all the same thing around the same time, and that she was set in her decision and wasn't in any way wondering whether she'd done the right thing. She knew Zuelabanzi was not good for her. It would also later be proven that Zuelabanzi had also been telling people that Nandi had broken up with him around this time, although he would deny he'd ever said this to anyone. And his neighbours said he'd had other women in his home during this time as well. Now, the only reason I'm harping on this point about whether the couple were or were not broken up in January 2012 is because it would later become very important. Nandi returned to Johannesburg from KZN in January 2012 to start the work year. She would occasionally tell her friends that Zuelabanzi didn't seem to want to accept that they had broken up and contacted her often, despite her telling him she wasn't interested in getting back together with him. On the 25th of February 2012, Nandi and a friend travelled to the wedding of another friend in Marble Hall, Limpopo. Nandi's friend would later testify that while there, they'd met a man called Oliver Matlala and his friend. The four young people got along well and spent much of the weekend together. Nandi and Oliver got along particularly well, and soon after they returned to Johannesburg, Oliver asked Nandi if she'd be interested in dating, and she agreed. Oliver Matlala would later say that although Nandi had mentioned that her ex-boyfriend had been badgering her to get back together, she hadn't really spoken much about Zuelabanzi Zungu during their time together. Unfortunately, they would not really have much time together to see where their relationship might go. On Saturday the 3rd of March 2012, Oliver and Nandi had arranged to spend the day together at her home. She'd noticed he was washing his clothes by hand, so she'd offered to let him use her washing machine. So when she collected him from his home in Alexandra on Saturday, he brought along a load of washing. Oliver said that they'd spent the evening at Nandi's house, he'd done his washing, and then they'd gone to bed. What happened next is reported by two sources. One is Oliver Matlala, and the other is Welabanzi Zungu. And I'll relay what Oliver says about what happened here, and we'll get into Zuelabanzi's version later, and then also which version the evidence supports. Oliver says that at some point in the night, 
He woke up and realized that there was someone else in the bedroom with them, and he was suddenly assaulted about the head and face by that person. Oliver was so taken aback by the Blitz attack that he didn't immediately focus on his attacker, but he heard Nandi shout, Zweli, leave him alone, and he realized it must be Nandi's ex-boyfriend. Oliver said that at this, the man then moved toward Nandi and started to assault her. Nandi was able to get away from the man and pulled him into the lounge, closing the bedroom door behind her. Oliver believed she'd done this to separate him from his attacker. He then realized that he was bleeding from the head and used a cloth to clean himself up. But as the blood continued to flow, he realized he'd need to get medical attention to his injuries. Oliver went into the lounge and told Nandi he needed to get to the hospital. He said that Nandi looked at the man he believed was Willabanzi and she told him that she was going to take Oliver to get help. Zwilabanzi refused and told Nandi she wasn't going anywhere. He threw her car keys at Oliver and told him to drive himself. Oliver says he didn't really want to take Nandi's car, and he tried to get hold of a few friends to see if they could collect him, but he didn't have any luck. While he was on the phone, Zwilabanzi was shouting at him, questioning him about his relationship with Nandi. Oliver eventually realized that he would have to take Nandi's car to get medical assistance for himself. He started preparing to leave by taking his washing out of the washing machine, and as he was doing this, he says Zwilabanzi, who was raging all the while, grabbed Oliver's cell phone and watch off the kitchen counter where he'd placed them and threw them against the wall, smashing them. Oliver left Nandi's home in her car a few minutes later and says he went straight to a friend's house to accompany him to the hospital. He said his head was still bleeding at that point and he was able to be attended to and the injuries were not too severe. Now, I'm just going to try and address this at this point because I was wondering about this and I'm sure you are too. I did wonder why Oliver had firstly left Nandi there in the first place, and even if he felt he had to leave because he was bleeding pretty badly, why did he not phone police as soon as he got to his friend's house and had access to a telephone? There are a lot of whys. But let's be clear on one thing here. Nandi and Oliver had only been seeing each other for one week. They barely knew each other. So I can sort of understand that if Nandi had said to him, don't worry about it, just go, he may have done that. It's a very difficult scenario to understand, and really Oliver would regret his decision to leave in many different ways for the rest of his life. So while I guess it's easy for me to sit here and say, you should have done this and you should have done that without actually being in the situation, it's extremely difficult to know what anyone may have done. After being stitched up at the hospital, Oliver did phone Nandi at 7.30am on Sunday morning to check on her. She did answer and softly said that Zwilabanzi was still at her home and he shouldn't phone again. She said she would arrange to collect her car from his home later that day. 
Oliver never spoke to Nandi again, although he did receive a text from her number on his friend's phone shortly after to confirm that she would collect her car. But Nandi never arrived to collect her car, and Oliver was too scared to call her again in case he made trouble for her. On Monday, the 5th of March, 2012, Nandi didn't arrive for work. Her co-workers and supervisor would later say that they immediately felt something was wrong because Nandi had never missed a day of work, and if she was going to be late, she always called in. That morning, though, she simply didn't arrive, and her cell phone was off when they tried to call. Eventually, her co-workers got hold of one of her friends, who said they would go to Nandi's home and check whether she was there. This friend and another friend of Nandi's went to her townhouse complex together. The security at the gate let them in, and they knocked on the doors and windows, but there was no sign of Nandi. One of the friends present was the same woman who had been with Nandi when she'd met Oliver, and she knew that they'd started dating, so she tracked down his work number and was able to make contact with him. Oliver relayed the story about what had happened on Saturday night leading into the early hours of Sunday morning and confirmed that he hadn't spoken with Nandi since 7.30am on Sunday and she hadn't collected her car. The friends were horrified and told Oliver that they were going to come and collect him so that they could make a police report. Oliver agreed and he, along with Nandi's two friends, was soon at Vierdebrug police station to make a missing persons report. To their credit, although we know this is often not the case with missing adults, police in this case did react immediately, undoubtedly because of the story Oliver had to offer. Nandi's friends, Oliver and two police officers, went to Nandi's townhouse and police broke into the garage and let themselves into the house. Inside, police found the townhouse empty but in complete disarray. Nandi's handbag was in the house with her wallet and all her bank cards, but her cell phone and laptop were missing. The police officers had entered first, searched the premises and cleared it, and then allowed Nandi's friends in who took photographs of the mess inside with their phones. Both knew that there was absolutely no way Nandi would have intentionally left her home looking like that. She was a very neat and tidy person, and there was no doubt in their mind that something very bad had occurred in that townhouse. In the hours after Nandi was officially reported missing, Her family and friends immediately launched their own search for her. Her family from KZN travelled to Johannesburg and searched hospitals, mortuaries and anywhere they could think of with no success. Probably understandably, in these early days, Nandi's family were suspicious of Oliver's story and weren't entirely convinced that he hadn't played a role in her going missing. They barely knew the man, and he was one of the last people to see Nandi before she went missing. The fact that he had Nandi's car in his possession was also suspicious. 
despite these suspicions, they also could not deny that Oliver's story could be true, and Zuela Banzi was a definite suspect. Nandi's brother collected her car from Oliver and also asked him to hand over the clothing he was wearing on the night of the incident. Her brother handed both the car and the clothing over to police for processing. He would also admit that he had visited Zuela Banzi and questioned him about his sister's disappearance. The man denied any knowledge of her whereabouts, and in a rage of desperation, Nandi's brother had punched him. It seemed clear to both Nandi's family and police that the secrets to her whereabouts lay with either her current boyfriend Oliver or her ex, Zwilabanzi. Oliver actually was arrested shortly after Nandi disappeared. He was questioned extensively and eventually released, but that would not be the last time he would see the inside of a police interview room. Zwilabanzi, on the other hand, was far more difficult to find. It would later emerge that shortly after he'd been visited by Nandi's brother, Zwilabanzi had packed a bag and gone to live with his uncle in Katlehong. Also around this time, he abandoned his post at work and would eventually be dismissed in his absence on charges of desertion. A warrant of arrest was issued for Zwilabanzi Zungu and eventually a 50,000 rand reward was offered for any information leading to the recovery of Nandi Mbazani. By this time, forensics had been completed on Nandi's townhouse and the results were not positive. Nandi's blood was found on the bed frill of her bed and also on the outside of a pair of yellow cleaning gloves found in the kitchen. Inside those gloves was male DNA which was later confirmed to belong to Zwelabanzi Zungu. Items that Nandi was believed to have been wearing when she was last seen by Oliver, as well as pieces of bed linen, were found in the washing machine. A dog trained to react to the presence of human blood had also alerted in Nandi's bed, her bedroom floor, and in a sink. Other forms of evidence were also collected in the days after Nandi disappeared, including fingerprints evidence, which showed that Zwilabanzi Zungu had definitely been in the townhouse very recently. CCTV footage and sign-in information from the security booth at the complex was rather damning and served to mostly confirm parts of Oliver's story too. The footage showed Nandi and Oliver entering the townhouse complex together in her vehicle on Saturday the 3rd, as Oliver had reported. Next up, Zwilabanzi Zungu is seen arriving at the townhouse complex just after midnight on Saturday. Oliver is seen leaving at 4am on Sunday morning in Nandi's car, as he indicated, and at 25 to 10 that morning, Zwilabanzi Zungu leaves the complex in his silver VW Polo. There is no sign of Nandi in the car, and she is never seen exiting the townhouse complex again. Cell phone evidence would be another part of this case that painted an important picture. Even though Zwilabanzi was yet to be arrested, 
police were able to obtain records for his cell phone, as well as Nandi's phone, which was missing, and Oliver's phone. Oliver's claim that his phone had been smashed against the wall before he'd left appeared to be supported by the fact that it had continued to ping, despite being smashed, from the tower nearest Nandi's home after he left the complex. It would later move, and its movements coincided with the movements of Nandi and Zuelabanzi's phones, indicating that Oliver's phone was with their phones, and presumably them, when he could be confirmed as being physically located somewhere else. His information about the communications he'd had with Nandi after he left her complex were also confirmed. The telephone call at 7.30am was answered, and Oliver's friend, whose phone was being used, stood nearby and could hear a female voice on the other end. This call on Nandi's end bounced off the tower nearest to her complex, which indicated that she was still alive and at her townhouse at that time. Importantly, Zwilabanzi's phone was also located at that same place at that same time. The SMS that Oliver had mentioned coming from Nandi's phone was also confirmed. That was sent at 8.20am and also pinged off the tower near Nandi's home. Zuelabanzi's phone started moving on the 4th of March at 10.35 and tracked with Nandi's phone until an area on the highway when her phone stopped sending a signal. It was likely turned off at that point or disposed of in a manner that completely destroyed it. On the 25th of April 2012, with Nandi still missing, Zuelabanzi Zungu handed himself over to Hawke's officers in the presence of his attorney at Pretoria Magistrates Court. The man claimed he'd only realised he was being sought in connection with Nandi's disappearance when he'd seen his photograph in a news article the week before. His version of what had occurred on the evening of the 3rd of March into the morning of the 4th of March was different from what Oliver claimed. But it wasn't just that night that differed in his version. According to Zuelabanzi, he and Nandi were still in a relationship when she disappeared. He claimed that he'd been visiting her regularly in the days before she disappeared, and he hadn't known that she'd been seeing Oliver. He said that on the nights of the 3rd of March, he'd gone to her home, but realised he didn't have the set of keys she'd given him, so he'd knocked, and when she didn't open, he'd broken in. From there, he admitted that upon finding Nandi in bed with Oliver, he had assaulted Oliver but denied assaulting Nandi. He claimed that after the altercation with Oliver, he'd left the townhouse and went back to his car and fallen asleep in there. He claimed he'd awoken the next day around 9am and had no idea what had transpired in Nandi's townhouse after he'd left. Zuela Banzi was charged and detained in custody. His car was also taken into evidence and searched, and further evidence was yielded. A stain was found on the back seat of Zuelabanzi's car, which appeared to have been blood, 
that had been cleaned away. Unfortunately, it was too diluted to confirm either way. Blood was also found in the boot of his vehicle, and although this blood was confirmed to belong to a female, the sample was too small to confirm whether they'd actually belonged to Nandi. Zuela Banzi's explanation for this evidence would be that the previous owner of the vehicle was a woman, and the blood must have belonged to her. This explanation would be drawn into doubt, though, when another witness came forward. The owner of a car wash in the same area where Zuela Banzi lived came forward to police with testimony from his employees who had served Zuela Banzi at their business on the afternoon of the 4th of March 2012. The men provided a statement that they had washed and cleaned Zunga's vehicle at his request that afternoon. One of the men stated that he'd seen a mark on the back seat that looked like blood. He'd proceeded to clean it, but he'd later told his co-worker about it, and they'd become concerned when they'd seen that police were looking for Zungu in connection with the disappearance. Police were later able to track down another man who regularly cleaned Zungu's car, and he'd said that he'd washed the vehicle on the morning of the 3rd of March, and there had been no such stain on the seat. Zungu would claim that the stain was caused by engine cleaner, and that his regular car cleaner had spilled it on the seat, and that was one of the reasons he'd taken his car for another wash somewhere else the next day. The regular cleaner denied that this had ever happened, and the man who'd spotted the stain said he was very familiar with engine cleaner as he worked with it daily, and what he saw on the seat was not engine cleaner. Police and prosecutors now found themselves with a decision to make. They still had not found any sign of Nandi, but it was becoming more and more apparent that she was sadly deceased. They had a growing bank of evidence that Zuelabanzi Zungu had murdered her and hidden her remains, but he was not talking, and the case they would face in court without Nandi's body as evidence was perhaps one of the most difficult of criminal cases to prove. No body murder convictions are notoriously difficult to achieve. They are very rare, even internationally, and this is because the burden of proof on the prosecution goes far beyond proving an accused murdered a victim. First, the prosecution has to actually prove that a murder took place at all. In other words, that the person who is essentially still considered missing is actually deceased. When cases like this go to court, two legal principles are most important for the prosecutor. The first is, as mentioned, the burden of proof on the state to prove that a murder actually occurred and that the accused is guilty of that murder and the type of evidence presented. There are two types of evidence that would usually be presented, circumstantial and direct. Circumstantial evidence is the most common type of evidence presented in no-body cases. This is often because the body is not available and or the scene at which the murder is believed to have occurred is unknown. 
Direct evidence includes anything that can directly link a defendant to a crime, such as biological evidence like DNA, witnesses, CCTV, fingerprints, and the like. Circumstantial evidence is all the evidence that infers the defendant's guilt without actually proving it on its own. This includes things like a history of domestic violence, prior threats on record that they intend to kill a victim, proof of the defendant being in the same area as the victim when they were last seen. Witness testimony can fall under either direct or circumstantial evidence. If someone testifies that they saw the defendant stab a victim to death, for instance, that would be considered direct evidence. If that witness were to testify that they were parked outside the victim's house, saw the defendant go inside, heard screaming, and then saw the defendant run outside with blood on him, that would be circumstantial evidence. In the latter case, the state would then have to ensure they prove that no one else was in the house, that the victim died at the time the witness said the defendant was there, and that there was no other reasonable explanation for the defendant to have had blood on them. There's often a belief that circumstantial evidence is weaker than direct evidence, but this is not necessarily true. It's often necessary to have a lot more circumstantial evidence, if that is all you have, but there have been many cases that have been successfully built on circumstantial evidence alone. The burden of proof in a criminal case always lays with the prosecution. It is for them to prove that a death occurred and that that death was caused by the accused and that the death met all the legal requirements of a murder. The defendant does not have to prove that they didn't do it, but it is in their best interests, especially in a no-body case, to present evidence that at least provides a different and reasonable explanation that opposes what the state is claiming happened. Of course, the defendant is always within their rights to remain silent in court and not to challenge any evidence. If the state has a weak case, they may still be found not guilty, but that would be a pretty big risk to take, especially today, considering no-body cases are not brought to court on a whim. And it is against this backdrop of understanding that prosecutors had to choose whether they were going to go ahead with prosecution against Zuelabanzi Zungu or wait until they were possibly able to find Nandi's body. While Nandi's family understood to a certain degree the dilemma prosecutors found themselves in, they also just wanted justice for Nandi. Ideally, of course, they wanted to know where she was, and although they tried to remain hopeful that she was not deceased, they also knew that there was no way she would just disappear of, of her own accord, and so they had to accept the serious probability that she'd been murdered by Zuelabanzi that night. Although the charges against Zuelabanzi remained in place, the process to get to a trial would be long and arduous. Eventually, in March 2015, the NPA was ready to proceed, and the trial against Zungu began in the Gauteng High Court on the 2nd of March 2015, 
almost exactly three years to the day that Nandi had last been seen alive. The state began by presenting the circumstantial evidence that Nandi Mbazani was deceased. This included heartbreaking testimony from her mother and siblings about how close they had been and how Nandi would never disappear and not reach out if she was alive. Nandi's closest friend also testified that she had been at Nandi's house before when Zwelabanzi arrived uninvited, and Nandi had told her that she was afraid of the man, and as a result they had both left the complex. Her work colleagues testified as to her phenomenal growth in her career and how she'd had excellent prospects and absolutely no reason to abandon all she'd worked so hard for. It was also important for the states to show that Zuela Banzi and Nandi were not in a relationship at the time of her disappearance because that went to motive in that Zuela Banzi had been angry that she'd moved but it also showed that he had absolutely no reason to have been in her home. Several of the witnesses testified that Nandi had told them she'd broken up with Swelabanzi, and one of the man's neighbours also testified that he'd told them this too. To further show that Nandi was deceased, police showed that none of her bank accounts had been accessed and her phone had been switched off and never reactivated. The physical evidence collected by police, as well as the cell phone analyses, were also presented to the court. Zwilabanzi's defense attempted to claim that any occurrences of his DNA at the scene could be explained by transfer from him when he was in the home. Several of his claims were refuted by the evidence provided, including his claims that he'd visited Nandi several times in the days before her disappearance because CCTV showed no sign of him at the complex until he arrived at midnight on the 3rd. Zuela Banzi was also seen on the CCTV footage leaving Nandi's home in a different shirt than the one he'd arrived in. He claimed that he just had two shirts on. He had removed the top one because he was getting hot. He was able to produce the other shirt, but his mother had already washed it, and there was no evidence to be found on it. Zuela Banzi had claimed that he'd never used the yellow cleaning gloves found in the kitchen with Nandi's blood on the outside and his DNA on the inside, and he said there was no reason for his DNA to be inside them. When the car wash witnesses testified, his defense claimed that the pair were in a conspiracy against Zuela Banzi to help the prosecution and that they were lying. The judge would find that considering only one of the witnesses had testified to seeing blood and the other witnesses had simply confirmed what that man had said and also that those observations were made prior to the car wash employees even knowing what Zuelabanzi was accused of, it was highly unlikely there was any conspiracy afoot. Nandi's family attended the court proceedings and created a Facebook group to update those who'd been following and supporting them. In April 2015, both the state and the defence had rested their cases, and the judge was ready to deliver his judgment. He assessed the evidence carefully, often referring to prior no-body murder convictions as precedent case law. 
This mainly included the Frances Rasuke murder, in which her boyfriend at the time was found guilty of her murder, without her body having been recovered at the time of the trial. The judge determined that sufficient circumstantial evidence had been presented to show that Nandi Mbazani was indeed deceased. He also found that Oliver was a reliable witness and that this evidence could be relied upon. In addressing Zwelabanzi's version, the judge said that even in the absence of Nandi's body as evidence of murder, all the available physical and circumstantial evidence showed that his version could not reasonably or possibly be true. As a result, he found Zwelabanzi Zungu guilty of the murder of Nandi Mbazani. While Nandi's family was overjoyed to have received justice for her, they equally hoped that now that Zwelabanzi no longer had any hope of getting off on the charge, he might share the location of Nandi's body. Unfortunately, by the time mitigating and aggravating evidence had been presented in the sentencing phase of the trial and the judge was ready to pass down sentence, Zungu still would not admit his guilt or provide information about the location of Nandi's body. In November 2015, he was handed down a life sentence for his crimes, and he was led down to his jail cell with his lips still sealed. In 2016, Oliver Matlala came forward to speak with journalists about his experience during the investigation into Nandi's murder. You'll recall that Oliver was arrested and questioned soon after Nandi disappeared, and you'll also recall that once the evidence was analysed, it became clear that as bizarre as his, as his story was, it was true, and he hadn't been involved in Nandi's disappearance or murder. Well, it would be revealed that between those two points, Oliver was arrested a second time. Clearly, at that point, police still believed he was somehow involved or had information about the crime, because Oliver said he was tortured by police officers on that occasion. When he was arrested for a second time, Oliver said he was held for two days and subjected to various means of torture, including electrocution and suffocation. He said that he was bound at his hands and feet and surrounded by at least 10 police officers. He claims he was alternately interrogated and tortured during this time, with officers demanding to know where Nandi was. But Oliver could not provide this information because he had no idea. And eventually, at the end of the 48-hour period, he was driven back to his mother's house and shoved out of the vehicle onto the pavement. When Oliver came forward with this information, he said that he hadn't wanted to go public with it while Nandi's trial was ongoing, for fear that it would harm the course of justice against Zungu, but he had been privately pursuing the possibility of taking action against the officers. He said that although his physical injuries had healed, he suffered from PTSD and would wake up in the middle of the night, shaking and crying. Oliver said that he'd been told that the time period during which he was allowed to lay charges against the police officers had lapsed but a spokesperson for the IPID said that this was not correct 
and they would assist Oliver if he approached them. I haven't seen anything further on this in the media. There have been quite a few cases where police brutality like this has been proven and the officers involved have been disciplined and the victim has received a payout in compensation. And behaviour like this from police, if it is true in Oliver's case, which I have to say because it's yet to be proven, is extremely problematic. Because we see many, many eventually convicted offenders claiming the same thing, and their claims are often dismissed. It's easy to say that if tactics like this get a guilty offender to confess, then perhaps we should just look the other way. But what if it gets an innocent party to confess? Oliver was strong enough to withstand the torture, but many, many people might not be. As I release this episode, it is eight years since Zungu was convicted and 11 years since Nandi Mbazani was murdered and the whereabouts of her remains are still unknown. Her family has done their best to move forward, at least having received some form of justice. But their grief has undoubtedly been complicated and stalled by not knowing where her remains are and not being able to lay her to rest. As was the case with the murder of Francis Rasuche, the evidence is simply overwhelming that Nandi is deceased, and that she was made that way by the last person to be in her presence, Zwilabanzi Zungu. I must say that while I was reading through the judgments in this case, every time State versus Nkuna was mentioned, which is Francis's case, I felt like Francis. Strong, independent, fierce Francis, who was stolen from her family and community, was standing up and staring Zungu in the eyes. I realize that sounds weird, but it's the feeling I got. Francis and Nandi were the same age when they were murdered. They were both young and accomplished women from close families who were building incredible futures for themselves. Had circumstances been different, perhaps they may have been friends. Instead, the murder of one would build the basis of justice for the other. Almost as though Although they both deserved so much more and should never have become the victims of two possessive and violent men, their legacy has become joined. Together, they've laid the foundation for future offenders who think that they can take the lives of their partners, dispose of their remains and face no consequences. To be held to account because there will be future cases. There's absolutely no doubt of that. Somewhere out there right now, a relationship is ending and a nightmare is beginning. For the Mbazani family, the nightmare continues. I can only hope that, as was the case with Francis, a stroke of luck 
will soon reveal the whereabouts of Nandi's remains, so that the nightmare can start to fade just slightly, and her loved ones can have the finality they deserve. Nandi Mbazani, rest gently. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then. Thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. A healthier, happier, more productive life starts with good sleep. Make sure you invest in the right bed. Dial-A-Bed stocks the best bed brands at the best prices. Shop at 76 stores nationwide or online.